0: Back in Matthew 6 this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew 6, verses 22 through 24. Remember, we talked about verses 19 through 21 last week, and I need to read that passage uh, because it kind of leads into the passage for this morning. Let's look at verse 19. Where our Lord Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And interestingly, he shifts from talking about the heart to talking about our eyes, And and we're going to see this morning there's kind of a connection between these two things, scripturally speaking, in a metaphorical sort of way. Then Jesus says in verse 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is is that darkness no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and mammon let's pray holy father i just uh, on behalf of every believer here this morning i i just thank you for the salvation that we have in christ i thank you that we can call out to you as our heavenly father as your adopted children. I thank you that through the power of your spirit, you have enabled us to see and enter the kingdom, to understand and believe the gospel. And it's the filling of your spirit we seek now to help us to understand correctly the things that you want us to understand from your word today so that we might become more like Christ, so that you might be better glorified in our lives so that we might be better witnesses for Christ in this lost and dying world. We ask these things for your glory and for our good, and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. I'd like you to consider with me the following illustration I came across. A London newspaper once offered a prize for the best definition of money. It was awarded to a young man whose definition was this, money is an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven and as a universal provider of everything except happiness. Now, I happen to think that Jesus would have agreed with these Assumptions made in this definition. In fact, I suspect that the man who gave it, the young man who gave it, may have been a Christian. Uh, in the passage before us this morning, in its immediate context, Jesus warns us about the danger of money. He warns us how it can lead us away from God and cause us to miss out on the treasures of heaven. I certainly know that I was challenged quite a bit as I studied these sayings from the Lord. In fact, every time I study them, I find them challenging and convicting, and, and it seems I'm always led to ask myself at least two crucial questions, which I'd like each of us to ask ourselves this morning, and this will provide the outline for our study today. The first question is, how well do I really see? And the second question is, what master do I really serve? Now, notice I'm not asking, how well do I think I see, but how well do I really see? Now, now what master do I think I serve, but what master do I really serve? These are the questions I think that shout out to me from the text. First we'll try to answer the question, each one of us for him or herself, how well do I really see? We'll be looking here at verses 22 and 23, where our Lord Jesus says, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, the basic meaning of this metaphor I don't think is too difficult to discern. When our eyes work as they should, we're enabled to see the world around us clearly. When our eyes do not work, we're left in darkness, unable to see the world around us. We can experience the light outside us when our eyes function properly, but not when they fail to function. But Jesus' use of the metaphor runs deeper than this. Not that we're not aware of the reality outside us as we should be if we don't see clearly, right? That's the basic idea, but I think, again, the metaphor runs deeper than this, and we can understand it more fully if we also understand the Old Testament background that Jesus is assuming. As we've seen throughout the study on the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, if you've ever been in any of my teaching of Jesus' teaching in any of the Gospels, it becomes very clear in almost everything Jesus says, he's assuming an Old Testament background most of what he says isn't altogether new, although sometimes it's a new application of something old. It's almost always reminders of things that thoughtful believers at the time ought to have known from the Old Testament. So he's saying, definitely saying this in a very new and sort of challenging way, but the concepts he's utilizing aren't new. He's drawing this metaphor from the Old Testament And as we look at how he draws this metaphor from the Old Testament, we're going to see that he employs this metaphor in at least two ways. First, our Lord Jesus draws upon the Old Testament teaching that what we fix our eyes upon, in this context, such as material wealth, is sometimes very closely related to what we set our hearts upon. As David writes in Psalm 19, verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This idea of eyes and light, again, um, Jesus, again, he's taking these metaphorical concepts. They're already there in the Old Testament, even though he's kind of applying them in a little bit more challenging way. But I would ask, based on Psalm 19.8, do our eyes widen with excitement as we look into the word of God? That's the impression you're getting from David. Are our eyes and heart connected in the way that David's were? I mean, if if we have a heart for God's word, do we want to look at it all the time? If we don't want to look at it all the time, do we really have a heart for it? See the connection between the heart and the eyes that Jesus is assuming? It's right there in Psalm 19.8, this connection. It's also the perspective of the the author of Psalm 119 as uh, the following verses combine to indicate Remember, Psalm 119 is all one long psalm. It's an acrostic psalm. Uh, Eight verses for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's pretty long. And we're going to look at a couple of sections of it where we see this interplay between heart and eyes. In Psalm 119, verse 10, we can read, in one particular stanza of this psalm, with my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wonder from your commandments. And then later on in that stanza... In verse 18, he says, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. A person's heart who has a heart given to God, right, wants to look at the things of God in his word, wants to be able to understand them and see them clearly. And that person also understands that he can't do this unless God opens his eyes that he may see. So if we have our heart for God's word, we'll also have a recognition of the fact that we can't see in his word what he wants us to see unless he opens our eyes to see it. But the connection then between the heart and the eyes that Jesus presupposes. Later on in Psalm 119, verse 145, in another stanza of the psalm, The the psalmist says, I cry out with my whole heart, hear me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. And then later on in that same stanza, he says, my eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. The person who cries out to God with his whole heart is the person whose eyes are looking into God's word. And in fact, in this case, he can't sleep because he's so busy wanting to look in God's word. He wants to meditate on God's word. The connection, again, between the eyes and the heart. Clearly, what a man longs for in his heart will also become what he spends his time looking at in many respects. And he will do so with the desire to see what he longs for with as much clarity as possible. So, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reflects this emphasis by using the metaphor of the eye in a way that is closely related to the heart. Remember again, as I read before, the context of his saying, beginning in verse 19 Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. That's where your eyes are going to be focused, right? And your heart. <laughs> but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves are not breaking and steel, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you're looking at and longing for earthly treasure, right, the, if, if your eyes are constantly captivated by those things, so will your heart be. That's the assumption that Jesus is making when he goes on to say in verse 22 that the lamp of the body is the eye. Why bring that up? Well, it's because we see these treasures that we want them, right, in part, So just as the eye illumines and thus affects the whole body, i.e. the whole person, so also what we set our hearts upon will affect our entire life, not only in this life, but in the life to come, because he talks about treasures in heaven. But there are even more striking parallels to Jesus' usage of this metaphor in some other Old Testament texts, texts having to do with greed, covetousness, or stinginess. And we'll just consider three of them. The first is found in Deuteronomy 15 verse 9 where Moses writes speaking the words of God, "Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, the seventh year the year of release is at hand and your eye be evil against your bro- your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry out to the Lord against you and it become a sin among you." In other words, this guy's looking for a way And not to be stingy and hold back giving what he should give back to his poor brother. But notice what it says literally in the text: it says, and your eye be evil. The idea behind this is a person with an evil eye is a person who looks at and longs for earthly treasures, and that makes him not want to give them to other people because what he's looking at is what he's longing for in his heart. That's the assumption. And that's going to make him want to keep those things for himself, even though he's got a poor brother who has need. It's called the evil eye here. And it's used a couple more times this way. In Proverbs 23, 6, you lose this in the translation in the New King James Version, sadly. But it says, do not eat the bread of a miser, which is kind of what the evil-eyed person is, right? A miser nor desire his delicacies. Now, the Hebrew phrase translated miser in this proverb is literally one who has an evil eye. Do not eat the bread of one who has an evil eye, nor desire his delicacies. The old King James Version translates it more literally that way. Well, what's the idea here? This person with an evil eye, we, we know is a stingy person, a greedy person. And the author of Proverbs here is saying, don't be like that person. Don't spend your time with that person indulging in the evil eye activities of that person. Right? The stingy, miserly activities of that person. Don't treat those, act, those actions and that, that greediness, that stinginess as though it's a good thing and you approve of it is the idea Also in Proverbs 28, 22, it says, A man with an evil eye, and that's, again, a literal translation there in the New King James Version. A ra-ayin, ra is evil, and ayin is the eye, an evil eye. A man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. Of course, Jesus would say, the man with the evil eye who hastens after earthly riches, what's the poverty that will come upon him? Well, they miss out on the heavenly reward. <laughs> now, I think there can be little doubt that such passages provide the background for Jesus' use of this metaphorical language. And that we must conclude, therefore, that an evil eye that lusts after riches corresponds to a heart that desires earthly treasures. Jesus speaks of the heart, or the, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then he starts talking about your eye and how it sees Or not. Well, why would he do that? How are these things connected? Well, we can see from these Old Testament passages how they're connected and the connection that Jesus is assuming. But he's not done utilizing the metaphor to make his point, which takes us to another way in which he makes use of it. Secondly, our Lord Jesus also suggests the idea that our eyes can play tricks on us, that we can think we have light when we don't. When he says this, if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This speaks of the deceitfulness of the human heart, which is also taught in the Old Testament. Such as in the following verse from the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17.9. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Of course, the next verse says that the Lord searches the heart. The answer to that question is God's the one the only one who can really know our hearts and show us what's in them. So he can reveal our self-deception to us. And those of us who know Christ, we've experienced that, which is why we see. We see Jesus for who he really is. And we trust in him. Remember, we saw that the psalmist prayed that God would open his eyes to wondrous things in his law, in Psalm 119, 18 earlier. The assumption here is that because of the wickedness of our hearts and our blindness, God must do something in our heart and God must open our eyes if we're going to understand his word as we should. Now, even professing believers can fall prey to such blindness. People who profess to know Christ, profess to be able to see, can fall to prey to this kind of blindness. And this is clear from our Lord Jesus' confrontation with the church at Laodicea in the book of Revelation. There in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, we're told, and this is uh, Jesus speaking, and to the angel of the Lord of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, referring to Jesus, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And I won't get into unpacking the metaphor behind all of that. But then he says this, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have needed nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They're blind because their, their hearts are being set on earthly riches. They were a wealthy church. They had a lot of money, these the believers there. And they mistook that for spiritual riches when it's not. And, and therefore they were blind. And so Jesus said, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. And white garments that you may be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve. Won't get into the background of that either. The point is that their eyes don't see correctly, metaphorically. Their eyes are bad, so there's darkness in them, according to what he said in Matthew chapter 6. The same kind of language. And in the context of earthly riches, right? <laughs> being their focus. If earthly riches are your focus, you've got bad eyes, and they're letting darkness in instead of light. You're blind. He says, anoint your eyes with eye that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chase, and therefore be zealous and repent. So again, those La- Laodicean believers thought that they were rich because they had earthly riches. But Jesus counseled them to get heavenly riches from Him. They didn't see correctly; their eyes were bad. They needed to go back and read Psalm one nineteen eighteen, and pray that God would open their eyes to wondrous things from His Word, and so they could see what true riches really are once again. And Jesus asked them to repent, and that would be part of their repentance. They had evil eyes that had rendered them blind to their spiritual riches. Apparently, they never had gotten the point, really, of Jesus teaching on the Sermon of the Mount, or they'd forgotten it. So, we come back to the first question we should ask ourselves this morning, and that is, how well do I see? Have I started to see like Laodiceans saw? This is something that creeps up on us. I've been, I've been going slowly. I've been losing eyesight slowly over the years. It's a gradual thing. It's been creeping up on me. And I think that can happen to us spiritually sometimes. We start to see more and more poorly. And it's so, so gradual that we see more and more poorly that, poorly that we don't see that we're doing it, we don't realize it's happening. How well do you see? Can can you say that your eye is good rather than bad? Do you have a generous eye that sees opportunities to give rather than to get from others, for example? It's a good question to ask ourselves. Or do your eyes see the world primarily through a materialistic lens? How How do we determine whether or not we're sliding into this sort of blindness? How can we tell when it's happening? Well, we can look at passages like Matthew 6 and Revelation 3, for example. But I think there are also some other questions we can ask ourselves, some diagnostic questions that are derived primarily from all the passages I've been reading to you so far. One question we could ask ourselves is this. Do I enjoy looking into God's word as much as I enjoy looking at other things? That's a good question, it seems to me. That was being shouted at me as I was reading some of the psalms. Do I enjoy looking at God's word as much as I enjoy looking at other things? For example, art, television, movies, cars, houses, whatever. As the author of Hebrews admonishes us, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Note that the author of Hebrews there, in Hebrews 13.5, assumes that when we're not content with what we have, when we have a roving eye that looks at worldly things and starts to think that that's going to make us more happy, right, than we currently are, when we're not content with what we have, what does he say the problem is? Well, we're not really trusting that God is with us and will take care of us then. We're forgetting that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So how can we tell when we're starting to slide into seeing badly and our hearts are starting to be captured by earthly things? Well, one thing we can tell is we're less and less concerned to look into God's word and we're trusting him less and less to take care of us. Another question we could ask ourselves is, do I see the needs of others as an opportunity to give, or do I look upon them with a stingy eye, an evil eye, as the Old Testament would put it, that refuses to see the need and refuses to share? Show me a stingy Christian, and I'll show you a Christian that needs to read Jesus' letter to the Laodiceans, right? How about this question, do I care more about having a financial cushion to fall back on or a comfortable life than I do about serving the Lord with my money or possessions? Is my first thought always, how do I put aside for the future? Or how do I serve the kingdom? And if I've got something to put aside for the future, good, I'll do that. Because God, as we saw last week, that's not a bad thing. The Bible wants us to plan to take care of our families and so forth. But do we have the right set of priorities in doing that? Are we balanced in that? Where's our first thought always, I got to look after me first? And that also indicates I don't trust God to look after me if I help someone else. I guess we could ask ourselves along these lines, how, how, how do our savings and investments compare to what we've given to the Lord's work or for the sake of others? A fourth question we could ask ourselves is when we're short on money, what's the first thing that suffers? Is it what we're giving to the Lord's work in some way or, is, or are we looking for something else to give up? course that's a question that's individual to each person there's no one size fits all answer but I think we all know when it's happening if we stop and think about it and lastly how about how about the opposite set of circumstances when you when you get some financial windfall or a little extra discretionary cash for those of us who actually occasionally have such (laughs) experiences what is your first thought about what to do with it? That's a good question to ask to see if we're sliding into being too consumed with worldly things, isn't it? When I get extra cash, what's my first thought about what to do with it? Is your first thought about the bill you might pay or about how much you could set aside for the kingdom? You've got to do both, right? You've got to pay your bills. Because your first thought about something you might buy for yourself or what you could do to help another brother or sister in the Lord. Well, I get an extra thousand bucks. I can do these five things. I can take my extra vacation. But you've got a brother or sister in great need and you didn't even think of them. And it's beyond what you need. But they have a need. It, and it doesn't cross your mind that maybe God gave you the extra thousand bucks for them. If, if, that's your, if that's your norm, always thinking of you first, your eyes aren't working right. You're not seeing clearly. Your heart's not in the right place, maybe. And that's true for me, too. Everything I'm saying here, if I'm pointing one finger at you, there are three pointing back at me, right? This is true of all of us. We all have this struggle. We all slip into this blindness slowly, usually. None of us would say, Well, I'm going to quit being a caring, giving person whose heart is set on the things of the Lord and to just make a decision to quit that. No, no, what happens is we gradually get lulled away by looking, looking, looking at the things, setting our mind, our hearts, our eyes on the things of the world, and we, it's gradually, gradually we start to go blind. And if we've seen it happening, well, happening to us today, if it's been revealed in any of us is that that sl- slide has begun in some way, I know the believers here. We're none of us like the Laodiceans, in my opinion. But we might be taking the first step to being like them, or the second step without having known it, and maybe Jesus has revealed it to us this morning so that we cannot be that. In other words, he's heading off at the past, that kind of sin in us, by graciously, graciously challenging us this morning from his word. Well, I hope, I hope the kind of questions drawn from the concepts and passages we've looked at have been helpful uh, in helping us all discover how well we really see. But they also may expose what master we're really serving. <laughs> and this leads us to our second main point, which is our second main question that we each should ask ourselves today. Not only how well do I really see, but what master do I really serve? Look at what Jesus says, In verse 24, no one can serve two masters. We already know what those two masters are going to be, given the preceding context, right? God or earthly riches, right? And so we're not surprised when they turn out to be that. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That Jesus has... Continued his discussion about the danger of earthly riches is obvious in his use of this term mammon, which is actually just a transliteration rather than a translation of an Aramaic word that just means money. Typically, it's, it's to be translated as money. That's the way it's translated in ESV or wealth as it's translated in the American Standard Bible. Both are good translations. Here the word is obviously used like a personification of the treasures on earth that Jesus has just spoken of in verse 19. In fact, he uses it in a similar way as the analytical lexicon of the Greek New Testament says that the term was also used of the Syrian god of riches. In Aramaic, there was a Syrian people would speak Aramaic, and Mammon was the name of one of their gods. and It was a god of riches because the word means riches. So Jesus is referring to the person who, whether intentionally or not, turns money into a god when he he speaks of trusting mammon. He's not just saying that you can't serve God and money. He's saying you can't serve God and money because money then is an idol that you're worshiping, just like those other people worship idols. You may not think you're worshiping an idol because you don't have a carved image you've set up and called it something but it's idolatry nonetheless that's the point in using this word so jesus is driving home the point that coveting and seeking earthly riches as our priority is really just idolatry in the end and he doesn't want us to kid ourselves about that you see he's talking to jewish people who thought that they'd given up idolatry because by this time, you wouldn't find an idol in any Jewish home. By the time they came back from Babylon, they're pretty well kicked that habit, right? But Jesus is trying to get them to see, but that doesn't mean you're still not idolaters. Just saying not having a carved image that you bow down to doesn't mean you're not an idolater. If money's your God, you're an idolater. And we can't serve this false God and the true God at the same time. I remember one summer when I was in Bible college many moons ago, I worked two jobs. I worked for an electronics manufacturing uh, company during the day. And at that that point, I was managing their storeroom. And I was the guy who would put together all the stuff that they would need to do different jobs. I would go throughout and get all the right kind of electronic things that they needed to put together to make, you know, Uh, computer boards and things like that. But I also worked for UPS in the evenings, loading trucks. That was a (laughs) horrible job. Um, And although it was hard work and sometimes difficult getting off one job and time to make it to the other, um, it was quite possible for me to work for two employers. And I did it for a while. Many of us have done so. But Jesus is talking to people in the first century, and he's talking about a different kind of relationship, that between a slave and a master who owned him. And in that culture, it was typically impossible to really serve two masters. See we think because we can serve two employers, we forget that well these weren't employers, these were were masters who owned them. As A.H. McNeil correctly observes in his commentary in the Greek text of Matthew, men can work for two employers, but no man can be the property of two owners. For single ownership and full-time service are of the essence of slavery. He's nailed the first century in that way. But some people try to serve two masters anyway. As John Stott so aptly reminds us in his commentary, the message of the Sermon on the Mount. He writes this, Some people disagree with the saying of Jesus that you can't serve two masters. They refuse to be confronted with such a stark and outright choice and see no necessity for it. They blandly assure us that it is perfectly possible to serve two masters simultaneously, for they manage it very nicely themselves. Several possible arrangements and adjustments appeal to them. Either they serve God on Sundays and mammon on weekdays, or God with their lips and Mammon with their hearts, or God in appearance and Mammon in reality, or God with half their being and Mammon with the other half. It is this popular compromise which Jesus declares to be impossible. And these are all ways we kid ourselves, and we might not come right out and say, "I think I can serve two masters," but we live like we can, and like we think we can. Jesus has none. He wants to have none of that. Perhaps we should recall one more time the words of Jesus to the church at Laodicea, which had been blinded by mammon, earthly riches, when he said in Revelation 3, 14 through 16, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're either hot nor cold. I could wish you were hot or cold. So then because you were lukewarm, neither cold nor hot I will vomit you out of my mouth they thought they could serve two masters they could be lukewarm a little cold a little hot nope and Jesus goes on to say you're serving riches you don't realize you're poor the words of the Lord by the prophet Isaiah also come to mind in Isaiah 42 verse 8 I am the Lord or Yahweh that is my name And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. We can be sure, then, that God will not share his glory with any idol whatsoever, whether they be carved images or not. In conclusion, then, I would just ask, how well have you done today in considering all these questions? I've been throwing at you based on the text the questions that have been thrown at me first as I studied these things. How old do you see, really? Have you had your eyes checked today? How have you done? What master are you really serving? Maybe, like me, that you really want to be seeing clearly and you really want to be serving Jesus and no one or nothing else but you found as these questions have been coming at you, you've started to slide into serving another master a little bit too much you have started to looking a little bit too much at the wrong things and you're grateful that Jesus has pulled you in I hope I hope I think Jesus' words to the Laodiceans bear recalling it a third time in Revelation 3.19 where Jesus says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. He's lovingly waiting for you. If any of us have felt pierced in our hearts this morning with shame or guilt because of a wandering, adulterous eye, that so easily lusts after the things of this world or because of our cheating hearts which all too easily become enamored with the things of this world, then let us recognize that our Lord Jesus has confronted us because he loves us. If you feel rebuked by him this morning, it's because he loves you that he's doing it. He wants to help you. He wants to, to... to stop you short of falling into these things. He doesn't want you to end up like the Laodiceans. But to whatever degree he's exposed in you that you've gone that direction, hear what he said to them. I love you. That's why I'm pointing this out. I care about you and what's best for you. That's a good reason to be zealous and repent. His words rebuke in order to bring repentance and restoration of a right relationship with Him. That in mind, let's pray. Holy Father, I feel confident that I can say on behalf of my fellow believers here, uh, we're sorry for whatever ways in which we've had a wandering eye, an adulterous eye, a wandering heart. We know we're tempted every day in every way to have wandering eyes, to have wandering hearts. We're prone to wander, as one hymn writer said, and we feel it. And we're glad that you have reminded us of your love for us this morning and that you have rebuked that tendency in us so that we might repent of it. And experience your love more fully and thank you for that i pray and for anyone here who has not yet come to know you as lord and savior it is our prayer that you would do for him or her what you've done for those of us who know you that you would open their eyes that they may see that you who are god became man and lived a perfectly righteous life so that you might die on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, that you rose from the dead and conquered death on our behalf, that you ascended to the Father's right hand, where you are reigning as sovereign Lord of the universe and calling out to them to trust in you, to cease trusting in their own efforts and in earthly things, and trust in you alone as the one that can save them for you have done all that is necessary to save them by living a perfectly righteous life, dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead. Help them to trust you, Lord, I pray, so that they can leave here today with their sins freely forgiven, with the gift of everlasting life. And if anyone does trust in you today, I pray that he or she will come and talk to someone else in this room or already knows you, who can help them then to begin to follow you better. We ask these things in the name of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.